Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 14 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about a few different things. We had, uh, I, I jokingly called it the Ecumenical Council of Port Orchard, the Great Bible Quizzing Ecumenical Council of uh, Port Orchard of 2018 that took place just this last Saturday at my house where Scott and uh, another quizmaster or former quizmaster currently coach, maybe quizmaster in the future, uh, came over and uh, we debated in great detail uh, all uh, some very interesting stuff around uh, question difficulty, scoring, type distributions, uh, or difficulty scoring and type distributions and how uh, randomness plays a factor into the difficulty of, of quizzes and so forth. So we're going to kind of touch base on a little bit of what that was all about. Mostly it's it's not like anything that's going to – it's actually – Nothing that's going to change anything, even in terms of Pacific Northwest. It was purely just, I think, more a thought exercise, but I think a really rewarding thought exercise. So maybe we'll share uh, something interesting that came out of that. Uh, Scott has been collecting or, or receiving additional feedback from folks who attended Great West uh, just this uh, just this year, just very recently. And uh, he's got some highlights he wants to share. And then we thought we'd take some time and go through things that will probably never happen with a Bible quizzing, but they might be interesting sort of things. So we'll, we'll call it the hypothetical crazy quizzing structure and rules segment. Some ideas might be good, but I think most of them are going to be horrible. Uh, but nevertheless, it might be fun to kind of go through some of these ideas and see what you guys think. And then if we have time, which it's unlikely we will, but we'll see if we can get through everything, uh, we might touch a little bit on evangelism ideas around where Scott and I uh, maybe try to come up with some ideas to evangelize quizzing both within uh, Pacific Northwest and beyond. So with that said... Let's go into the recap of the Great Bible Quizzing Ecumenical Council of Port Orchard of 2018. So, Scott, um, I don't know. How, how do you want to summarize what happened? Um, I don't know how much of a summary this will be. It'll probably be more of me talking for minutes on end. We'll go for it. <laughs> and certainly I'm going to interject because I have strong opinions about what we talked about. Sure. Well, the main topic of discussion was question difficulty and how, how if at all, should that be managed um, by those who generate question sets for a district's quiz meets? And this goes back to something that I've done since I've been a quiz master within Pacific Northwest is I assign a difficulty score to each question that I write, and then I attempt in every quiz of 20 questions, so the basic 20 questions, I attempt to have the sum of the difficulties of those 20 questions be, j be pretty close to the sum of the difficulties in other quiz. And the main overarching goal here is we would not want quizzer A on team one in the first quiz to have a really hard question set presented to them, like interrogatives that aren't key until the fifth syllable and finish these two verses and chapter verse references on um, maybe kind of a, a, a reference question that's not of the normal structure or the most expected structure. We wouldn't want that to happen to Quizzer A, Team 1 in the first quiz, and then the second quiz, there's interrogatives that are key fast, and there's a short finish this, and then there's a, a chapter reference, the word of whom, the word of God. We wouldn't want that to happen um, because it kind of creates an advantage for one, one team and Quizzer and a disadvantage for another team and Quizzer, even if 
everything was being generated randomly. And I believe that ran, being random when you're generating questions is very, very important. But my desire was even within randomness, we know that randomness is sticky. And so you will get, randomly get quizzes that are much harder than average and much easier than average. Uh, and I wanted to kind of smooth that out so that quizzers were presented with a similar test, whichever quiz they got into. Well, now... Uh, in context of Griffin's application, CBQZ, which generates quizzes, um, we've decided to put in functionality for question difficulty. And with our end-of-year meet looming for Pacific Northwest, there were some details about um, the programming algorithm for question difficulty that we wanted to sort out. And so we talked for three hours on end about what you know what determines question difficulty and how it, again if at all should it be managed programmatically or kind of from a top down structure standpoint and we kind of we kind of came to a lot of realizations that were probably understood but we articulated them to each other and some of those realizations were there are many factors of difficulty when it comes to questions for a quizzer some of those and many many aspects or factors of difficulty that can be different in different situations. What I mean by that is one room might have benches and another room might have pads, and those are unequal situations for the quizzers. You're going to have different quiz masters, um, and not getting into some quiz masters might be bad or good, but they're just different. So those are different competitive um, factors presented to quizzers, right? Um, there's also um, difference difference of opponent. You, you might have strong opponents. You might have weak opponents. There's also a big thing we talked about is not necessarily the difficulty of a particular question, but where the specific question types arise in a quiz. If you're a keyverse quizzer and most of your keyverse questions come at the end of a quiz when the quizzes are usually sped up, and um, that would probably be much more difficult for you than if the keyverse questions, randomly of course, just happen to occur near the beginning of a quiz. Um, but all three of us really, really agreed that the randomization of where the question types appear within a quiz should always stand. So um, because of the implications of um, a lot of key verses or multiple answers or reference questions early versus late are, are big, we didn't, we didn't think anyone should be setting those in any sort of a structured way. It should just be up to randomness where those arise, arise in a quiz. So kind of moving past where the specific question types arise in a quiz and those other factors of question difficulty. Well, another one is jumping speed, but that kind of goes into competition level. But we started to talk about what makes each question type difficult. And there are many factors and they're different for each question type. Um, we we realized that they're very different uh, factors, whether you're talking about district quizzing or junior quizzing versus your finals or your Great West or your international. Um, you, shall, shall I take a take a breath here, Griffin, and see if you have any thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, I think you're doing a fantastic job recounting what we went through. They're kind of diving into a couple of things that you talked about, uh, or I don't, I'm not diving, just it sort of reminded me of certain things that that either you or or Jeremy said uh there was one there was one spot that that Jeremy uh pointed out that an error assume assume you have a quote question on question number 2 and a quote question on question number 18 an error by your keyverse specialist on question 2 is not that big of a deal it's recoverable in the context of a lar of the larger quiz uh, question number 18, an error can be devastating, uh, especially when you're talking about a keyverse specialist on question 18 erring at that point, uh, at that state. It can make a world of difference. 
uh, toward for the overall effectiveness of, of the quiz. And that sort of resonated with me, this notion of like, it's exactly the same question, it's exactly the same people, but where it sits within the quiz makes just such a huge difference. Uh, and it was, it was something that is sort of, I don't know, I subconsciously was aware of that. Uh, I guess I can't be subconsciously aware of something. I was subconsciously feeling that that was the case, but I had, I had never really consciously thought about it. And, and with, with Jeremy saying that, it was kind of like, oh yeah, that makes tons of sense. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff was sort of, um, it was really interesting for, for me. I mean, certainly I, I did my share of talking during the three hours. Uh, but a lot of what I, what I enjoyed most was just listening to the dives, the intellectual dives into sort of the implications a lot of, of a lot of stuff that we were talking about. One of the things that we were talking about that, that you mentioned around, we all really wanted to keep the pure randomness of type distribution. Although when we started, I was not, I think I was leaning in that direction, but I, well, actually, I'm sure I was leaning in that direction, but I wasn't necessarily 100% sold on it. Um, because there are situations where you're like, yeah, you know, if I've got all of my key questions clustered within, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19 or something, or in the, in the first five, uh, or so questions of the quiz, uh, those are wildly different uh, quizzes uh, compared to something that's a little bit more evenly distributed. And although, you know, chaos is fair, uh, chaos means that you can have those clusterings. And what does that do? And I sort of I, I got uncomfortable about those clusterings and I got uncomfortable about the, the extreme variance of, of sort of the type of the quiz that it would be with those sorts of edge cases. And so I, I, I remember this, this point, uh, call it maybe an hour and a half in where I drew this bell curve and then chopped off the ends of the bell curve and said, maybe if we chop off the extremes, we can have something that's still random, but it's kind of fits within this sort of pattern. But we ended up deciding, like, I, I'm not really deciding, but all three of us just sort of got to this point of saying, like, that would be horrible because it it makes the quiz more predictable in a sense of saying like well if i've got a if i'm question number 3 and i have a finish the verse question it's very unlikely i'm going to have a quote or a finish the verse for question the, the very next question so it, it i don't know to what massive degree that provides advantage but that awareness of just sort of took something away from from quizzing for for me anyway yeah, and I think there are some aspects of the random question type distribution that are really positive, even if they seem negative on the surface. One example would be if one team has a keeper specialist and someone on that team errs on question five, well, question, question six is going to be a toss-up for the other two teams, and if one of those teams errs, it's going to be a bonus for the other team on question seven. And if six and seven are key verse questions, those are going to be questions that the quizzer on the team that erred never has a chance to answer. Um and on one hand, you might say, oh, that's unfortunate. But on the other hand, you might say, well, there's an added incentive for quizzers to not err, which I think is a good thing. Um, but then there's also an added incentive for quizzers to not um, limit themselves to knowing only a single question type, where they can be prone to, I guess, quote unquote, being locked out of a type because of the randomness that might arise within a quiz. Yeah, absolutely. But going back to question difficulty, um, we, we had the overriding sense of 
um, having either witnessed or participated in quizzes that were overly difficult relative to the average difficulty. And again, you can get into the specifics of how you determine difficulty for an individual question type, but in a, the most general of senses, you c I think we can all agree that there is a difference in difficulty between questions. Um, and we've all witnessed uh, quizzes where the interrogatives weren't key for a while and quotes were long versus... Um, and we saw that the impact that it had on quizzers, and as much as possible, we want to eliminate those sorts of very outlier quizzes. But as we talked about how to implement this, and I actually think this is a way that programming can be very, very healthy because it's challenging. You have to very clearly define what you want to have happen and show how you can repeat it, repeatedly make it so. And in this case, most of our... Um, not theories, but our algorithms or logic about how to generate question sets, taking into account question difficulties so that you didn't have these outlier quizzes. Mo pretty much all of those scenarios that we came up with um, had the outcome of the easiest, the very easiest questions and the very hardest questions would be asked less frequently than questions of an average difficulty. And that was something we weren't super comfortable with. I think we were fine on a like if we were able to cherry pick the one or two quizzes that were super difficult and replace maybe the hardest question each of those quizzes, we probably would be fine with that sort of solution. But that's not really a programmatic solution. And when you delve into a programmatic solution, whether you're talking about quiz difficulty that are multiple standard deviations away from the average quiz difficulty, or whether you're only evaluating finish the verse questions against the population of finish the verse questions, really any any avenue you go down results in the very hardest and the very easiest questions being asked less frequently. And we didn't really like that outcome because we strive to write good questions, questions that are not just valid, but that are also good, that are written in the type that um, best tests that bit of material and that provides a complete thought and tests the, the quizzers on every bit of the material. And once you have those criteria for writing questions, they're all good and they're all equal in the sense that we want them all to be equally likely to be asked. Um, and we weren't too comfortable putting in place logic that had a portion of the questions asked less frequently. So I think at, at the moment we are kind of tabling any, um, any programming logic around question difficulty except for maybe some um, minor cherry picking before a meet starts. Yeah. We ended up um, switching around some of the algorithms a little bit and uh, switching around is too strong of a word, uh, minorly adjusting how some of the algorithms end up calculate for some, certain question types end up getting calculated. Uh, and so one of the things uh, that CBQZ has done for a little while now, a few months, ha it has generated automatically, it's been generating question difficulty scores per question. Uh, but one of the things Scott was doing when looking through large bulk sets of questions is that he was noticing, well, these are, there's these some weird outliers going on here. These, these questions that are, you know, most difficulty is, you know, four, five, six, seven, that kind of thing, occasionally a nine or something. And then there'd be a 60. Uh, and you're like, okay, that's that's bizarre. It's way off the map, you know, kind of stuff. And and so, you know, it kind of points to not that the question is ludicrously difficult, ten times more difficult than say a six. 
It's just that the algorithm is, is kind of throwing it out as an outlier. So we made some minor uh, corrections on paper on Saturday, and I actually just released those a couple hours ago, a couple, three hours ago. And so all of the questions that are out on CPC right now have been rebalanced to the new algorithms, which, again, that sounds like a big deal. It actually... It, it's only a couple of question types. It was like a, the CR question type and the finish the verse and finish this and finish two verses and that sort of, that sort of question type. And those were minorly adjusted to sort of calculate things a little bit differently. So, and again, it doesn't make a, a world of difference except it does tap down on those outliers. Yeah. And outliers are fine if that's what you get, but I think we were seeing some, some, uh, suboptimal ways that the question difficulty was being calculated that we wanted to fix. Yeah. So CBQZ, as of a couple of hours ago, has those corrections uh, in in place. And uh, if you're interested, I mean, you may not have noticed it so far if you're using CBQZ, but both in the editor, but also in the quiz room. And also if you're going to go to the print screen where uh, the question screen where you can print out all of the questions or like questions from a particular quiz or that kind of uh, thing, uh, there is a small and very easily not noticed box that says score. And uh, that that score represents the question difficulty score. And you'll see numbers that are, you know, 2.5, 4.7, you know, the, these sorts of numbers are are sort of the, the typical uh, difficulty across the different question types. Yeah, I've, question difficulty has kind of been a pet, pet project of mine because I've seen the impact it can have positively and negatively on a quiz and on quizzers. And I've also seen various attempts that others have made to, to kind of get there, which I think have helped us on the path. But Picking things like um, a set number of interrogatives that start with a W within a quiz or putting in a jump point um, where that jump point is compared to the entire material and not to not just to questions of that type. I mean, those things are starting to get us down the path towards question difficulty, but they're pretty limited in their ability to be meaningful. I think with CBQZ now, we're, we're a lot closer because um, – we're looking at how long a question takes to become unique as compared to questions of the same type. We're taking into, into account length because the amount of material that a quizzer has to answer is also a part of it. There are definitely aspects of question difficulty that we're not capturing. For example, on quotes, um, if there's a really good quote that's in verse 26 and a really good one that's in 27, those two references have a lot of similar syllables between them that a quizzer is going to be trying to jump fast on. Um, and because they have a lot of similar syllables, it makes them more difficult. But it's really hard to code um, similar syllables phonetically based off of numerics. Um, and so that's a limitation right now. But those, that, that's one area of question difficulty that I'm, I'm interested in because it's kind of a big deal for quizzers jumping on quotes and CVRs. Um, nothing else comes to mind right off the bat. But I think it's an, interesting, it's an interesting space that we're trying to work on. And it was a lot of fun to talk through it and, um, oh, in this, in this area, we have diminishing marginal returns from any sort of logic to, um, to try to help out on question difficulties. So do we even want this sort of logic if it's going to be complicating to a quiz? Or I think it's really helpful to talk to people that have different experiences or different viewpoints or maybe have thought about it in a different way than you have because then I think it's, it's very hard to edit yourself. This is why in college, if I ever had a paper that I deemed to be of extra importance, I would ask someone else to proofread it because I had written it. And so it all felt like it made sense to me and the spelling was all correct and all this stuff. But that's because my brain and I had written it. And so my brain and I was already kind of validating it. 
um, subconsciously. But when someone else read it, they could say, hey, these points didn't flow and you didn't support this point and you had a misspelling here that was a homonym. And I think that sort of thing applies to almost any argument or problem or conversation you're going to have. It's helpful to have someone um, with a different viewpoint part of the conversation because I think we made a lot of really good progress on question difficulty. And if it was just left up to me, I probably would have attempted to orchestrate a more and more complicated algorithm and may not have gotten the gains that I was thinking I would have gotten. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was definitely, it was a lot of mental work and I think a very enjoyable process. Um, but that being said, I, I do just like hanging out with, with you and Jeremy and talking quizzing. <laughs> so there's that too. So you've been getting some fair bits of feedback uh, from a survey, right? It was a survey that you sent out uh, to quizzers from, who attended Great West from P&W. Is that right? Yeah, I, I hadn't done this before, even though I've I've run a handful of Great West trips. But this year was a pretty unique year. It's probably among the last decade or so, I would say we had the youngest and least experienced quizzers for Great West. And I think um, districts just naturally ebb and flow. You'll have large graduating senior classes and small graduating senior classes. And while the district is at a point right now where it's probably easier to make Great West than it has been in a while. And as such, we had a lot of quizzers make Great West that didn't know the whole material, that knew only PNW key verses, that hadn't been to Great West before, that maybe didn't have an older sibling that had made Great West. And so I was kind of apprehensive um, about how the experience would be for them. So I'm glad we had a Great West practice and I could kind of start preparing them a little bit. Um, and they've all got great coaches that were helping set expectations. But and at Great West, the teams did better than I was expecting. But relative to at least the host district, we did poorly. Like our teams took, I think, 5th and 7th, ninth, 10th, and 11th out of 13 teams. Um, and But I was very pleased with the amount of jumps that our quizzers won. I witnessed a lot of Great West rookies for us winning jumps at really good paces, like correct speed like quote unquote correct speeds of jumping. And most often it was on material that they hadn't studied or didn't know well enough to get at a great West level. And so you didn't have the, all of the matchup, but material preparation and study and then execution at the meet to really score well and see results as a quizzer. Um, and I was expecting that. But I was also hoping that it wasn't this super discouraging thing where no one had any fun because everyone had a, 40% accuracy when they're used to 75% accuracy. And so I wanted to send out a survey and hear some of their thoughts. And I've been unbelievably encouraged by the thoughts. I mean, I've gotten feedback from a lot of our Great West rookies, and a lot of them only got a handful of jumps at Great West. And I've seen comments like, I've been to Great West, I've seen what other quizzers can do, and now I want to not only go to Great West again next year, I want to try for internationals next year, or I want to study the full material next year and not just a portion that I've done this year, or I want to study the full material and specialize on references rather than doing key verse questions. Um, one quizzer said, I never thought that I would make it to Great West, but when I did, it changed the way that I thought about quizzing next year. Ooh. And and that was one of my, like the best feedbacks I could have gotten, you know, because I wouldn't have been surprised if a few quizzers that they're like, I was in 10 quizzes, I won six jumps, and I got five of them wrong, and I didn't have any fun. Um, but almost to a person, they they saw what the quizzers were doing that did get questions, and they could see the path to themselves being that type of quizzer, and it didn't 
it didn't seem insurmountable. Like it seemed possible and it encouraged a lot of our quizzers, which is pretty incredible to me. I think that's awesome. Um, I had some feedback just today uh, from a coach who said, looking at two of my quizzers, um, you could tell there was a strong sense of we can win jumps on material that should be enough to know it. And if it had been a verse that we'd memorized, we would get it right. And it's not hard for us to get to a point where we have memorized enough material and then we could be just as good as the top five quizzers at this meet. And I think it's really cool to be able to examine both your process and your results and understand that um, I'm not getting the results that I want. I know what about my process is the culprit. And I think that, well, not think, I know that I can change that part about the process and then see the results change in the future. And it's kind of a cool, you know, matching up of a lot of thoughts. Yeah, that's awesome. Any other sort of uh, key responses you want to share? Not really. I think the the general feedback about the camp was the food wasn't good and we wish there was potable <laughs> water in the in the cabins. Um, and I think one quizzer didn't like the fact that there were benches in every room, but I think they're in the minority. That's odd. See, I would have expected a, a preference for the benches. I, I just I think they're so much more easy. I, I think they're they're easier to control as a quizzer. I think so too, but there there definitely are some that just don't like it for whatever reason. Interesting stuff. Well, camp food being camp food, uh, let's move <laughs> on to hypothetical crazy quizzing structures and rules. And as I mentioned on the outset uh, in the summary portion, uh, some of these may be good ideas that will never happen. Uh, but I think most of them are terrible ideas, but maybe not. Uh, you be the judge. Uh, so, and by the way, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening, uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org uh, about any of these hypotheticals, uh, whether you like them or hate them or want to burn them with fire, or if you think they're good enough that maybe we should advocate implementing them in some way. Uh, or if you have different hypothetical crazy quizzing ideas, I would love to hear them. I'm sure Scott would love to hear them too. So let's just kind of walk through some of these and I, I've, I've, kind of brainstormed a handful of them, but there, this certainly is not an exhaustive list, but it's sort of just to, to get our minds kind of flowing through some of the ideas. So some of these are terrible. I'm going to start with one that I think is a terrible idea, even though I came up with it, which was uh, don't have three team quizzes, always have two team quizzes. Uh, I think that's terrible, but Scott, what do you think about that? Well, initially it sounds terrible, but that's because the only structure that I know is the three team quizzes with four for a quiz out, three for an air out, and third, fourth, fifth person bonuses. And that's really the only structure that I'm familiar with. I think you, I know that th that three-team structure poses a lot of mathematical difficulties when generating meets and that kind of jazz and draws. And I, I could totally envision a two-team quiz structure working, but pretty much all of our scoring rules would have to be rethought from the ground up as far as do we want a 20-question quiz um, should we keep the same amount for quiz outs and air outs and all that stuff? Because right now it's at a really nice, I don't want to call it an equilibrium, but I think it's at a, a pretty careful balance with the 20 questions, four for a quiz out, three for an air out, three teams, toss ups and bonuses that all work in conjunction to reward the best quizzers, but don't allow them to dominate and monopolize a quiz and also keeps the jumping speeds um, at a good pace because of the penalties imposed by not getting them right. And all of those would have to be rethought and implemented for a two-team quiz to work. Yeah, that's very true. 
I dislike it for those reasons, but also for the subtle psychological reason that of, of I believe that it would change how we perceive the actual quiz itself. We would see the quiz itself as much more competitive in a, you know, A versus B, black versus white, uh, I, I, won't, I won't say good versus evil because that would mean one of the teams was evil, but, but the, you know, one side versus another side. It's, it's like watching a football game or a basketball game. Uh, it, it's, it's very binary, uh, very Boolean, that sort of thing. I, I think that sort of lends itself to a type of competition that maybe could put us at risk for straying away from something that I really love about Bible quizzing, where, you know, you can be in a quiz and a team is, uh, you're, you're beating, beating another team and then you try to be encouraging to that other team or vice versa. Uh, I, I've seen situations, uh, it's, it's not at all rare for a team that you're competing against to challenge on your team's behalf, you know, this sorts of, uh, this sorts of activity. And I know we've, we've talked about, you know, is that appropriate? Uh, is that good or bad from a, you know, if you do it or not do it, if you choose not to do it, is it bad? I don't think so. Um, but it's one of those things where there's this sort of subtle feeling around what's going on with, within a quiz. And I wonder that if we lose that with a, a two-team quiz, maybe. I think you would, you would completely lose it initially. Not, I don't know how long it would take to gain it back. Um, but I think there's a lot of familiarity with all of the um, tiny bits of nuance with our three-team quiz structure. Yeah. Well, another idea was, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about technicalities in the rules in terms of, you know, when you, if you jump a little early on a reference question, you have to provide the question. What is a valid question? All of these sorts of things. Uh, if you jump on a quote question before the reference has been completed, you must provide the reference. Uh, these sorts of things. And so I came up with this idea because I've seen good quizzers and even uh, rookie quizzers who are get, getting some of their first questions. I've seen them jump and end up erring on a technicality. Like, like they knew the verse. They had it fairly well certain. They recited it word perfectly, but they still erred because of some sort of technicality in the rules. And those technicalities, generally speaking, exist to try to slow down uh, jumping speeds that can get very crazy at the upper levels. But I was wondering about the hypothetical about saying, if you can jump and you're able to answer a question by quoting the entire material word perfect. So, and when I say entire material, you know, if it's a, if it's a quote question or finish the verse, that's obvious. But if it's like an interrogative, you're quoting the entirety of the verse that the interrogative uh, is in, or if it, if it spans two verses, you're quoting the entire two verses. If you're able to do that, then I think uh, what would happen if you were counted correct? Uh, that no technicalities apply if you can quote the verse word perfect. So Scott, what do you think about that one? I don't really like it. I think we're always trying to strike a balance between a peer quoting B and whatever the opposite of that would be. And to me, this is verging too far in the quoting B direction, and I think it would be less fun um, when a lot of the very specific question types will then end up being answered correctly, not without getting to the specifics of each of those question types, like providing a question or whatever. Um, and so I just think it would be too close to the more boring quoting B side, which not, maybe ironically is a side that would emphasize material knowledge above almost anything else. And I guess the flip side would be 
the a structure that rewards lists or specializations above everything else. But we kind of want to strike a balance in the middle where there's fun from having different question types of different difficulty levels, but also rewards built in for quizzers that know the full material to a deep extent. Yeah. So another idea was no substitutions. All teams are four quizzers or fewer. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, I think it would simplify a lot about tech and score sheet and stuff, but <laughs> I don't know what other sorts of unintended consequences it would have. Maybe there are churches, there are often churches of five quizzers, and they like being able to make one team versus being forced into two. Um, I know the most fun I've ever had quizzing is at internationals on a five-person team where all five quizzers are very close in ability. I had an absolute blast doing that, and I would hate to lose some of that aspect of quizzing, but I think you could still get a lot of it with a full four-team, um, four-person team. Were you ever a sub, though? Uh, yeah, I was actually a sub for the majority of the time my last year at internationals. Did you did you have as much fun? Well, I didn't have as much fun because I was doing poorly, but it had nothing to do with me being the sub. I actually volunteered to be the sub because I was going off too fast at the beginning of quizzes, and I would just set the pace way too high for the for all three teams. And so I I always started as the sub, but I usually came in by question eight, and I was usually in for a majority of the questions in a quiz. And the meet just didn't go how I wanted to, but it had nothing to do with being a sub. Okay. I've I've always been wondering about the sub situation. I, I It always makes me a little sad when there's a quizzer that's sort of missing out on half the quiz or, you know, approaching half the quiz. It, it always makes me feel like I want everybody to be able to participate in all the quiz, you know, kind of stuff. And so my idea about getting rid of the substitutions uh, factor is just that, um, you know, we're not dealing with a physical sport, you know, like football where, you know, you have to sub somebody out so that their body can recover. Uh, there is an interesting aspect around the notion of like, yeah, your your brain does get fatigued. Uh, over the course of a meet, and 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 you've talked about that uh, before in in terms of managing your mental fatigue. Uh, so, but I don't know that substitution is set up to do that terribly effectively. I'd, I'd almost want there to be a way you could sub somebody in and out faster or more dynamically or something like that, or allow for say, you know, a six person team, but people get to sub in without taking a timeout between questions. I know it, there starts to get some very interesting and problem problematic logistically implications, but I, I don't know. I just, I don't like the idea of people sitting out and kind of sitting on their hands and not having a chance to participate, but that that's sort of the, my motivation behind this one. Yeah, and I think there's already a tension um, involved with teams that are of three, four, five, um, three or four quizzers because most good teams at the district level level have two good quizzers, and often the third or fourth quizzer d don't get anything. And so you could argue that the experience for those quizzers, because they're on a team far above their own abilities, is almost similar to being a sub on a different team because they really have almost no chance to get questions. Um, in the types of quizzes that they're often participating in. And so um, I know some districts have a rule that um, churches must instruct the minimum number of four-person teams that they can with the quizzers from their church, and that's meant to um, reduce the number of two- and three-person teams that a church can construct. And that, that, that rule might be in place in that logistical reasons, just to have fewer teams participating in a meet. Um, but within PNW, I've seen um, 
a handful of two-person teams that I think were constructed out of um, really good coaching and empathy for all the quizzers at that church because those two quizzers on a team were really, really good and to take up eight to ten questions a quiz and be in finals every meet. And any other quizzer that you put on that team was going to get basically nothing. And so the decision was made, we're not going to put anyone else on their team. We're going to put them on other teams in the ty- in types of quizzes that give them a better chance to get questions right and show what they've studied and gain encouragement there. And I think that's kind of the everlasting tension between individual results and team results that really get put to the wayside for Great West Internationals, which might be why I had a lot more fun in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, then another idea is we've uh, got this concept of third quizzer bonus that is a plus 10, and then a fourth quizzer bonus that is a plus 10, and a fifth quizzer bonus, if you sub in somebody, that is an, another, is an additional plus 10. But really, a fourth quizzer bonus is substantially more rare than a third quizzer bonus. Uh, it, it, it takes more effort uh, than, than a third quizzer bonus, and a fifth even more so. So my idea here is what if a fourth quizzer bonus is actually worth plus 20 and a fifth quizzer bonus is worth plus 30? I love this idea, Griffin. A lot of my most favorite ideas um, revolve around bonus questions. I think... Um, well, bonus questions are bonuses of any sort. So in this case, third, fourth, and fifth person bonuses, I think 10, 20, and 30 as the bonus should absolutely... I'm looking right now from Great West, and there were 34 um, quizzes with a third person bonus in them. There were nine with a fourth person bonus, and there's one with a fifth person. And so I think rewarding it um, in an increasing manner is going to increase the importance of those quizzers, or not the importance, the impact of quizzers four and five getting questions in a quiz, which could create more incentive to study. Um, it would, certainly would provide more praise for them when they do get a question, and I think it's a great idea. I love this idea for exactly the same reasons. I I love seeing the four-person team, let's say, quizzing in my room, and the fourth quizzer is, let's say, a rookie, or maybe it's their second year, uh, but they're they're you know they're they've been memorizing but they really haven't been getting questions uh it's it's pretty it's a pretty rare occurrence uh the usually they'll have two people getting questions the third person occasionally does but not all the time and then that rare situation where the third person gets a question and then the fourth person gets a question and the room explodes and i think that's fantastic that the room explodes with with applause and praise and and encouragement but I'd love to be able to see even more of that that goes back to the the scoring, like like the idea of saying that if as a captain or a second chair on a team, if I can work with my third and fourth quizzers or fifth quizzers for that matter, and I can study with them and train them and encourage them, and we can work on a strategy to say like, here's a way to ensure that or, or increase our odds of getting the fourth quizzer bonus. Uh, I, I see the the impact of that being really substantial. It, it sort of gives a leg up, I think, to, or a kickstart maybe to a quizzer who's in their rookie season and, and just kind of getting out of the gate. And it sort of sets the world up for great encouragement. At least that, that's my hope. Yeah, totally. So then 
Uh, let's see, what was the next one here? Points for correct answers being inconsistent. Okay, so this one is definitely way out there. So the idea here is that right now, if you jump and on an interrogative and you get it correct, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a quote question, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a simple interrogative, you get 20 points. And if you jump on a really long and complicated multiple answer that spans two verses, but it's completely legitimate, but it's really hard because there's lots of like, you know, keywords in there, you get 20 points. And I'm wondering if maybe we should change that a little bit. What would it be like if, say, your standard question is still 20 points, but for a quote question, you get 30 or if it's a particularly simple uh, interrogative question, maybe it's only worth 10. Uh, or, you know, maybe even, I don't know if I want to flex it so much as to go to 40, but maybe if it's uh, a finish these two verses or something, or uh, quote this in the next verse or something, uh, maybe it spans beyond 30 to 40. But there's kind of this interesting dynamic there. Now, of course, there's all kinds of massive implications behind this that, that, are causing me to have a headache even now. <laughs> I mean, we're going to have to have the second ecumenical council of Port Orchard to sort all of this out. But the the implication being that, well, really, we should then somehow tie. Oh, maybe this is the T-shirt idea. So one of one of our ideas around scoring scoring right now is is a is a float number. It's a it's a one place float number. And uh, I think Jeremy came up with the idea, or, or at least he recited the idea a couple of times of uh, going to T-shirt sizing, where you, we would have like an easy, medium, and hard uh, level. And of course, if we do, if we are able to do that in terms of question difficulty, then we could say, well, this interrogative is easy, medium, hard. This quote question is easy and hard, and have point values associated to the difficulty there. But then, of course, it backs us into the situation of saying, well. How does that impact when you have a randomly created quiz and does that make it unfair to one team that has a chance of earning a lot more points because it's a harder quiz versus another team that is uh, not earning as many because it's it's an easier quiz. But then at the same time, you could say, well, maybe that is the way that we even it out. We have uneven question difficulty quizzes, but... Uh, if you are in a more difficult quiz, you are advantaged by getting more points for it. So yeah, I don't know. Would... How does that blow your mind there, Scott? Well, I love stats, and this kind of blows historical stats out of the water. But if you look at pretty much any major sport, there have been things that happen historically that make um, comparisons across different eras to be impossible anyway. So maybe quizzing is going to be no different. But I, I totally like the idea of different point values for questions. And you could do it in a very simple way. You score all your questions, and the hardest 10% are 30-point questions, and the easiest 10% are 10-point questions, and everything else remains a 20-point um, value. And I, I totally see the argument of, well, um, are we going to randomly generate quizzes, or every quiz has one, um, one low and one high difficulty, and the rest are medium? Um, and if it's random, what if there's three difficult ones and a team gets it and can score a ton more points than another team in a different quiz? I see all that, and I think um, even if t-shirt sizing is oversimplifying the concept, you kind of need to to make it um, implementatable, if that's implementable. Um, and I think as long as you don't go overboard with trying to um, have 
point values that change by one, like 21, 22, 23, 25, 27, um, and don't have too many t-shirt sizes. And if you think that the scoring applied kind of does reflect the difficulty of the question, then I think it all kind of does come out in the wash. You know, yeah, this this team sure did have a higher um, opportunity to score in this quiz, but on average, the difficulty was harder than in another quiz. It it reminds me of a, a PNW steering committee a meeting from probably five years ago or six years ago. So every off-seat, the PNW steering committee gets together for an in-person meeting for three, four hours. And what we were talking about was at PNW, we do prelims. So all of our teams have six prelims currently. And then after that, you get slotted into bracket. We have a nine-team semifinal bracket, a nine-team consolation A bracket, and then the rest of the teams are in a consolation B bracket. And we had weight on consolations A and B because we we were of the understanding that those the competition levels in those quizzes were easier. And so um, it's easier to get, a, say, a perfect quiz out, a 90 in that quiz, than it is in a semifinals quiz. And we wouldn't want quizzers on teams that maybe just missed semifinals and find themselves in Constellation A to actually have a lot easier of a time getting questions right. And they use Constellations to, to boost their averages relative to their counterparts that are in semifinals. And so we were debating, like, should the weight for Constellation A be 90%? Should it be 10%? Should it be 30%? And one party of the discussion going into, well, wouldn't a quizzer feel really bad if they get a 90 and the weight is only 40%, so then they only get 36 points of their 90 points? Like, wouldn't they feel bad about that? And actually asked one of um, their own kids who quizzed for seven years, like, how would you feel? You know, And the quizzer was like, well, I wouldn't feel very good if I got a 90, but I was only credited with 36. But then a different um, one of our members of the steering committee just asked the question, um, do we want uh, our quizzers advantaged or disadvantaged relative to each other by the bracket that they end up in? And unanimously, unanimously we said, no, we don't want them to be advantaged or disadvantaged relative to their other quizzers. And then he was like, okay, so what, we agree on that. The rest of it to calculate what the appropriate weighting is is purely a math problem at this point. There should be no other reason, like emotional reasoning or other sorts of anecdotal logic um, put onto it. It's just a math problem. And I thought that was an incredibly insightful um, thing to find about the situation that we were discussing. You know, uh, what was our goal, and oh, how do we get there mathematically? You know, and I think in this case, what would be our goal from putting 10 or 30 point questions and do we think that we can get there mathematically and i totally think that there's a way we could it certainly would lead to some very exciting strategery going on i i i like the idea of saying there is a set number of uh let's say 30 point uh questions and 10 point let's say that let's say the majority of them remain 20 but then maybe you have one or two 30s or one or two 10s and and cap it at that right i I, and i don't know exactly what those numbers are but but two seems reasonable you know so basically you end up with four questions that are that are off of the base of 20 uh by 10 points and the, so it's known ahead of time. Everybody knows what to expect. It's part of the sort of the matrix of how the quiz is going to be developed. All the quizzes, therefore, are the same 
in terms of the possible points that could be accrued across any uh, any given team. So there isn't like a, a quiz that is simply worth more points than than uh, than another quiz. And then there that leads itself into some very interesting coaching situations where a coach is tracking through these sorts of things and realizes, yeah, you know, we're getting down to question 17. We still have a 30 point question coming up. Uh, before the end of the quiz and our fourth quizzer hasn't gotten a question yet and they have been specializing in uh, key verses let's say and so you get you find yourself in this situation where you can end up you know the fourth quizzer bonus getting a 20 instead of a 10 so they get a a base of their 20 plus the additional 20 of 40, but then they get an additional 10 to a 50 because it was a quote question instead of an interrogative. So then in one question, you're go you're jumping up by 50 uh, because you're doing something a little bit harder. You're also in, in, in grabbing a fourth quizzer uh, to, to come into the mix. Uh, that leads to some volatility, let's say, in the stability of, of the scoring of a quiz uh, as things are progressing. But in a way, I think there's some there's some interesting stuff that comes about because of it. It, it almost it feels analogous to sort of like the three point shot in uh, in basketball in, in a way. I totally think so. And I can I kind of like the loss of or the decrease of stability at the end of a quiz when you can potentially get, you know, let's say a fifth person bonus was a plus 30, you know, you could get a 60 point question. Um, I think it's always, it, it is great. It's a great credit to a team that does so well in a quiz that by question 17 or 18, they can just sit knowing that mathematically they cannot be caught. But I sure like, and those teams are be are to be commended, but I think there's a lot of value to having every team, pretty much forced to continue jumping competitively until the quiz is complete. Yeah, absolutely. So another idea that kind of relates to this, we were talking about quizzers who score 90s uh, currently. So they get four, they end up uh, four and zero, uh, four correct questions and zero errors. And so they end up with 80 points and then they get this bonus of, of, of an, an additional 10 uh, at the end. And I was sort of thinking, well, I've seen the situation. I know, Scott, you've seen it too. And it's a very smart situation where I've seen 90-level quizzers strategically pick the questions that they want to jump on uh, by type mostly. Uh, but it can also be by other factors. I've seen that happen, and it should be it, – it, it is to be commended because they're, they've prepared extremely well to be able to get to the point where they have the opportunity to go after a 90 and be able to get a 90 across the entire uh, set of quizzes for a meet, and that's fantastic. A lot of work has to go into that, and that, that should be commended. Uh, what I'd love to see, though, is – what what well, let, before I say what I want to see – what I do see is they're strategically picking questions that may not necessarily be the hardest questions that come out, which is is totally intelligent to do. If you're sitting there and it's question, you know, 14, and there's a quote question coming up and you're three and zero, you're thinking to yourself, well, do I really want to grab this one? Maybe I sit on this one and I pick up the next interrogative that comes around because I'm going to have a higher probability of getting it correct. And uh, I can just grab that one fairly easily and safely, and I'll get my 90. Why risk it on the quote question? And so the idea of saying, well, point values being inconsistent can lend itself to a little bit more uh, motivation to maybe play a little bit more risk and calculate the risk of saying, well, do I want to wait for an interrogative or do I want to risk a little bit more for that plus 10? 
for the quote question. But then the other thing I'm thinking of is what if you are a 90 quizzer and we say, well, if you end up picking up one of those 30, your 90 is not a 90, it's actually a 100. So Scott, what do you think about that? Well, again, I don't like it because it, it makes it hard to compare across eras. But I think um, I think once you're assigning different point values to questions based on the question difficulty, I think you kind of have to credit that to the individual. I was just playing around in my head about, well, what if you have 10-point and 30-point questions, but if a quizzer gets 4-0 – for for like individual stats purposes, they're credited credited with a ninety, but for the team, they contributed say a hundred points or eighty points, whatever right. the point values of those questions might have been. And it feels cleaner from a calculating stats as we've always calculated stats. But I think once you're changing the point values of questions and make and making that known and setting the numbers of those difficult and easy questions in a quiz, I think you kind of have to credit them to the quizzer. And if it ends up with a quizzer averaging over a 90 for a quiz meet, then I think that's what the outcome is. Certainly some very interesting implications there uh, that would have to be thought through. Uh, so another one here, what if uh, you're answering a standard interrogative question that is 20 points, but you end up answering it correctly and you're given, I don't know, maybe no extra time. Let's say you answer the interrogative in 12 seconds and you use your remaining time to quote the verse, the entire full length of the verse, word perfect, for an additional 10 points. So what do you think about that? I kind of love this because it keeps everything about how quizzing is right now the same, right? Question types are the same. How you answer them are the same. All of the rule technicalities, they're all the same. But if you happen to answer it fast enough that you can quote the whole verse that is in there, um, Within your 30 seconds, I totally want to give you 10 more points, and I totally want to hear you try to quote that verse. The trick is going to be how do we make that work in terms of managing the room as a quiz master? Because, you know, essentially you can't call the person correct until they answer the interrogative correct. There's going to be a moment of cheering, and then you have to – so in a way, you almost have to – say like you have to stop their clock and then start their like call them again and start their clock again if they'd like to recite the question or something like like make it almost like a you call them the, the correct and then they have to say may i quote you say yes now they have the remainder of their time or do they get another 30 seconds or that could be very interesting it could be it would mean that pnw would go to 30 minute time slots for our quizzes instead of 20 that's true. If there were enough people who were doing it, I think we could do it fairly quickly, though. Uh, it, I don't know. I don't think it would necessarily require us to go to 30, but it, I don't know. It might be worth it. It might be very interesting. Certainly, it certainly encourages quizzers to memorize the full material uh, rather than just going after, you know, keywords or going after uh, key verses or that sort of thing. Absolutely. So then uh, I'm not sure I understand this one. So a negative 10 points extra if an error on an income question. Uh, do you know what this one's about? I have no idea, Griffin. I was hoping you knew. I probably typed it, but I don't know what I mean. Well, let's skip it then. I don't know what that means. Anyway, so the, the next one is actually super silly, and I know it's never going to happen, and it's probably a dumb idea, but I've always been baffled by the notion that all of our point things have a zero on the end, and the zero is just 
totally pointless. It just takes up space. So I've been, you know, toying with the idea of what would happen if we just divide all points by 10? Well, I mean, maybe you should ask the quizzers, not the quizzers, but the, the students who get a perfect SAT score of 24 or 240 and see if they would like that or if they would like it represented with more zeros as it currently is. I think it's purely a, a convention that I kind of like. Yeah, I don't know. The the purist in me is is just saying it's just adding zeros. I mean, maybe we should add a couple more zeros. You can get a you can get 2000 points for answering a question correctly. It sounds really cool. Well, uh, usually, usually I'm all for presenting the um the extreme to show why a convention is ridiculous, but in this case I don't I don't think that 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 logic works. Okay, how so? Because I think it's a convention and just because one extreme is bad doesn't mean that something that's less extreme is not. I mean, for pure simplicity, probably one, two are the simplest ways to count uh, values for questions. But I think adding one zero to 10 and 20 is a little bit more maybe, you know, thinking back, maybe it made it somehow easier to calculate team points the way that they wanted to do it. I can't think offhand what would prevent them from doing it if if, uh, points were 1 and 2 instead of 10 and 20, but who knows? I, I think it's a good it's a good number. 500 is a perfect quiz as compared to 50 or, um, I don't know, it just feels nice to me. All right. Well, then, the last one, which, again, uh, probably a terrible idea, but uh, Friday and Saturday meets versus Saturday only meets uh, versus having three-day meets, like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I know... Uh, we usually try to get things done on Saturday so everybody can get back home uh, Sunday for church and that sort of thing. But uh, what do you think about those sort of extremes? I think it's almost always determined by logistics and not by anything else. So, for example, like PNW, the majority of our quiz meets are two days, Friday evening after work and then ending sometime Saturday um, in the late afternoon, early evening. There is an overnight on Friday night, but it allows people to work and go to school a normal day on Friday for the most part, and then it allows them to be home in their own bed Saturday night before church on Sunday morning. That's how PNW does it. I know take North Central District in Minnesota area. They hold, I think, eight to ten meets a year exactly once a month. Their meets are Saturday only, and teams quiz three times in that day. So their their meets are just one – I bet you that's because they're a smaller district and not as dispersed geographically, so it's easier to, to meet more often, so exactly once a month, so every four weeks. PNW meets about every six weeks or so uh, for our meets. And I think having more consistent meets, like that's a time of fun for quizzers, it, but it's also a time of accountability, and it's totally a signpost that they shoot for to keep memorizing. I know that right after a meet, I would spend a lot of time – not messing around, but I would do more fun um, types of study. Like I would write questions or look at my question lists or test myself on unique words or just listen to the material. But as we got closer and closer to an actual meet, I would say, okay, I have to actually sit down and memorize a quote, which were the less fun parts of studying for me. And if I had meets more often, I would be forcing myself to do that sort of study more often, which would be good. But anyway, that's how North Central does it. And I bet you it's because of their geography of their district. Take Canadian Midwest up in Canada. They are widely dispersed. Um, like 
a quarter of their district is driving Great West type distances just to be at a district meet. And so as a result, they have one or two regional meets a year where their district is divided and then two or three meets with everyone. And those meets are three days. I believe they go Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's a pretty significant registration cost that they charge per person for those meets, like $60 or $50, which is not a model that PNW has. We don't charge individuals on a meet-by-meet basis. We charge individuals on a year basis and teams on a meet basis. But for CMD, they're running a, a very few number of very large meets, and so they charge more money to individuals for those meets. But, you know... The host church has to put up people for two nights. There's a lot more meals having to be provided. They often bring in things like bouncy castle obstacle courses. They had um, a very well-known Christian band a couple years ago that I forget the name of now, but it was like a band that everyone's heard of. Um, and so CMD throws a pretty big party for their meets. They have them over three days. But again, that's largely driven out of the geographic um, qualities of their district. Very interesting. Well, we have taken up our time, I think, with the hypothetical crazy stuff, so we'll have to park evangelism ideas for the next uh, quiz meet. But, uh, Scott, any uh, parting thoughts? No. My only crazy thing that I just thought of was while we still did jumping bonuses, when we still did jumping bonuses at internationals, I I thought that a a bonus error on jumping bonus, negative 50 or negative 30 for the team. Because I'm of the belief that that should never happen. You should never have four quizzers on the stage who are unable to answer a team jumping bonus at internationals. Wow, interesting. That's brutal. It would be brutal, but I think, I mean, the understanding is you have four quizzers who should all know the material and are being read a full question, and then only one of them has to jump. So I'm not saying that all of them have to know it. Just any one of them has to know it. And if they don't, I think that should be a pretty large penalty. You could also put it on the flip side and just make book correct bonus questions worth more. But I kind of want to single out the team jumping bonus errors at meets like Great West Internationals, where there is much more of an understanding that the quizzers know the whole material. Uh, This is not something I would ever want at the district level because you have – teams with a lot less experience and i don't think it's expected that all of the members of a team should have memorized the whole material like we do at internationals um but now with assigned seat bonuses i think the penalty kind of takes care of itself in that scenario because you are putting specific quizzers on the spot and teams that are more well-rounded will on average do better on bonus on those assigned seat bonus questions than teams that are less well-rounded and i mean i think we saw that at great west this year the accuracy on bonus questions was 47%, and the best district at them averaged 63%, and I think the worst district averaged something like 30%. And so right there, the difference in accuracy um, is kind of borne out by the difference in points allocated, and the accuracy is low enough that I think there is a large enough difference that the points are being adequately given out. But in the in the team jumping bonus world i just didn't think 10 and 20 points for a correct bonus and no penalty for an incorrect team jumping bonus internationals i i didn't think those differences were stark enough for what we're testing all right pretty cool well if you have any thoughts about any of the hypothetical stuff that we've been talking about or any of the other things the ecumenical council's findings or the feedback from great west or anything else related to quizzing please email us at iq at cbqz.org. 
IQ for inside quizzing at cbqz.org. And uh, of course, uh, I'll put in the plug again. Uh, go to cbqz.org slash app to check out the CBQZ uh, system or the app system or whatever it is that we're calling it. I guess we just call it the CBQZ. But anyway, it's there. Uh, you, you need to sign up for an account, but it'll email uh, Scott and myself and we can approve you. And if you have any questions, uh, please email us and follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter is at Inside Quizzing. And I think that's it for episode 14. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thank you, Scott. All right. See you later, everyone. All right. Bye.